We have seen in the book of Exodus that God has come powerfully and majestically down to Mount Sinai and has spoken the Ten Commandments to the people. So terrifying was this event, the people of Israel asked Moses for a medi- to be their mediator, for God to never speak to them again in, in, in this fashion. And thus, that's what Moses is going to do. And we have the tendency to stop reading at Exodus 20 and think, well, there's the Ten Commandments and that's the rest of the story. Uh, and, and yet, there's so much more. You'll notice in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 1, it just simply says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And now God is going to give Moses and say, here's all the things you should do in teaching the people. It would be fair to say the Ten Commandments would be an overview of what God's law is. And chapters 21 through 23 are the application of those ten laws. Well, how do we apply what God has said here uh, on the mountain? What are the details of how we will handle those things. We have the tendency to get to texts like this, like these three chapters uh, that are called the book of the covenant in chapter 24, and to read these and go, well, all of these are Old Testament laws, and so they don't apply to us. There's no reason to study it. Let's just move on to the golden calf and just kind of scurry our way out of Exodus and let's get to the next story that we can enjoy. And there's an awful lot here in these three chapters. And what I want us to look at is a couple of things. Number one, we're going to look and see that these laws reflect the character of God. Remember that God is meeting the people and the people are learning about who God is. And law reflects the character of the lawgiver. And so the things that we're going to read are vitally important for us to understand who God is, how he looks at laws and the things that he gives to his people so that we can understand what he intends for us. The second thing that we're going to notice is that there's actually prophecy, New Testament prophecy in this section. And so that's where we're going to end in our in our study. And I was torn and trying to decide, do I break this in pieces or not? And I decided since we have our Wednesday night, we're going to go all three chapters and we have Wednesday night to go detail by detail through all those things. And so with that in mind, we won't be able to read all every single verse of these three chapters. I'm going to highlight some key things for you and then know on Wednesday night we'll do the nitty gritty and roll up our sleeves even further and really get into some of the things that are in here. So really some neat things. So here is Moses. He's on the mountain. God says, here's what I want you to teach the people. And in chapter 21 and the first 11 verses, the first thing God goes to is slavery. And this is an immediate turnoff to all 21st century Americans. As we read this and go, well, this is horrible. Why isn't slavery completely decried and denounced as deplorable? And, and we have a problem with that. And I think it's interesting that one of the things that we struggle with is we have to understand a context of what was being said back then. For us, what we do when we hear the word slavery is we immediately visualize forced slavery with mistreatment. And I want you to understand that that was condemned in the scriptures over and over and over again. In fact, if you want to notice it right here, it's in chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That slavery is wrong, always. 
always, always was never allowed by God. And if you were found doing it, selling a person, kidnapping them and selling them or receiving such a one, you were to die for doing so. That's not what God has in mind when he speaks of slavery. The problem is, so do you translate the word as something else? And some translations have tried to do that. The problem with using the word servant is we also have the wrong idea. As when you read a servant, what do you usually think about? Like a butler or Downton Abbey or something like that. And we get the whole wrong idea when you say a servant. So we really have a problem. The translators, it's interesting if you can even watch videos of them trying to figure out what do we do with this word in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Because if we say slave, that's misunderstood. And if we say servant, that's misunderstood. So what are you supposed to do to communicate what the situation was here when God is talking about that. For us, probably what the best thing that we can kind of figure and would be useful in our minds is someone as an indentured worker because the purpose of it was it was a way to work off your unpayable debts. If you accrued a debt and you could not pay that person back, what you could do was allow yourself to go to that individual and say, I'm going to work for you to pay that off. And so now you become their property, and now you're giving yourself to them so that you can do this task to pay off the debts that are that you've then acquired. That's the function of what it was in the economy that God has given here. And it's so important to know that. And I just want to underscore, it's not what we typically think of when we read about slavery, that that was expressly condemned. Not only that, I want you to notice that the text also expresses that there was no such thing as lifelong slavery. In verse 2 of chapter 21, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. It didn't matter how big a debt you had. When the seventh year came, you were free. And that was it. It didn't matter how big it was. And this is an important picture because this is what God had done for them. What's being modeled already is a picture of how God is setting free His people. And even though you have an unpayable debt, after this amount of time, God says, I'm going to... Allow them to go free, which is such a New Testament concept of what we see over and over again throughout the New Testament of that you've been set free from your sins, that you're no longer enslaved to sin and death and what God has accomplished. And already this is being used by the grace of God as a reminder to the people that Israel, you were slaves in Egypt. And so you are not allowed to mistreat those who were working for you, who allowed to put themselves under you as slaves. And they are to be set free after the seventh year, uh, regardless of what the debt was. And that's an entirely different picture than what sometimes we conjure as to what was going on in the Israel world. Now, other nations were certainly far worse in what they were doing, but that was not God's plan, nor what God had decreed for their people to do in regards to how they treated one another. And so thus, what you see in those first 11 verses is really God laying protection And laying rules on here's what the slavery should look like. And here is what you can and cannot do so that it would be all done properly. And so the rules of slavery then become useful in in that day and age. You just don't have credit cards back then. You know, you got to have a way to be able to deal with your debts 
And this was a way to be able to do that. Later on in chapter 21, you have then a description regarding capital punishment. I'd like for you to notice verse 12 of chapter 21. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And the reason why I want you to see that is because that is the overall principle. The principle that you will see throughout the law of Moses and is a reflection of the character of God is essentially a life for a life. If a person dies, then by that hand a person should die. That's just the general principle. Now there's all kinds of caveats and different rules to that as we're going to look at. But just a general rule, general principle, general picture, this is the way it was. In fact, that goes all the way back to Noah. As Noah comes off the ark, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This has always been the case before God, that life is important to God, and immediately God is expressing the very high value of life. In fact, I think it's pretty interesting for all the things that we're going to read about. There's no such concept that God puts together in regards to jail. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? When you read through this, you never see incarceration as a plan. There is either death or penalty or something to that effect of a fine. But there was never, okay, now you're going to go to jail for 20 years, and then after 20 years you'll be rehabilitated and you'll come out. God has no plan for that whatsoever. And so that should be interesting to us in the way God looked at those things, is you needed to pay the debt, and if it came from life, then life for life was the debt and how that needed to be repaid. As you go through it, I think some of the things that you'll read about in chapter 21 that demanded capital punishment, you will not be surprised by. But there are a lot of things that you probably would be surprised by that God says would require the the death penalty for the crime committed. How about this one in chapter 21, verse 15? Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. I think there'd be a lot less kids in this society if we were invoking that one. Very interesting picture. If you attack your parents, you were to die. That was not acceptable before God in the slightest. In fact, whoever two verses later, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is why we've spent a lot of lessons talking about parents demanding respect from their children, because this is exactly what God had decreed. And you were doing your children a great disservice if you didn't demand that, because later on they grow up and they strike you and they, they curse you. Here's what God said about that. About Here's what you, how you deal with that rebellious child. That's what honoring your father and your mother looked like. You don't curse them. You don't hit them. You don't speak evil of them. That was not acceptable in the economy uh, of God. Also interesting to notice, look at verse 22. When, a, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, wound for wound, burn for burn, uh, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
couple of interesting principles that are, that are laid out here. In this, you're given a, a series of pictures regarding uh, here is a pregnant woman and apparently two men are striving or fighting together. And in the process of this, this fight, the, the pregnant woman is struck and the unborn child is born. And it's pointed out here, if there is no harm, then there would be a fine imposed upon him. Again, we don't have jail. So you paid a penalty for causing that early birth to occur. But if there was harm, then notice this is where the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot kind of picture is given. In our society today that seems to struggle with the whole idea of when there is life, it is interesting that God lays out that an unborn child is considered life. Very clearly lays it out right here. Because if there is harm done to that child while still pregnant, then here's what needs to be done. And it would be a fine fine if nothing happened, if the child was completely fine. But then if there was harm then there was something that needed to be done about that, even to the point of life for life, even in regards to the child. Now notice typically how this principle is used. And notice this eye for an eye principle is applied to the pregnant woman and the unborn child. And this is greatly misunderstood. It was misunderstood in Jesus' day. It's still misunderstood today. It's misunderstood in the Old Testament. But what God was not allowing was personal vengeance. If you hit me in the eye, therefore, this verse says, I get to knock your eye out. You know, just just don't miss his mouth. You know, make sure you miss his mouth. Don't knock his teeth out, but hit his eye because he got your eye. That's not it. The whole idea is a principle of how the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's the whole idea that's being laid out there. Whatever happened in degree of severity, that's what ought to happen to the other person. That's why we mentioned the principle in verse 12. It's life for life. If a person dies, then so their life is. And that then ladders into whatever a person does, there should be an equal punishment put upon them for whatever crime they've committed. The whole idea is don't be too lenient, but don't be too harsh. And that was the principle that was being laid out here for the judges and those who would sit and rule over these cases of what was to be done in dealing with circumstances. You would apply this principle. This was not a principle that said, if I come to the court and they hit me in the face, they now have to stand here and I get to hit them in the face. No, the idea was the punishment needs to fit the crime. And so that's what's laid out. And that's why Jesus, when he comes along, he's not teaching something different in the Sermon on the Mount. He's applying this is the way it was supposed to be. But what had they done? Well, they had turned it into vengeance. I get to do something to you because you did something to me. And Jesus goes, no, you've always turned the other cheek. Was never what Moses was teaching. No, the idea was that when the judges laid their rule and put down their punishment or their fine, it needed to be not too lenient, but it needed also be not too harsh. And we'll see a couple of examples of that as we move through some some of these, these pictures. One of them that is interesting is there in verse 28, where there is a distinguishing between murder and accidental death. There is a picture that gives us a difference in punishment where there is negligence versus willful intent. And so that's even laid out by God. If there is an accident, then that is a different thing than intentional. If it is intentional killing of life, then it's life for life. End of story. 
But if there is negligence, uh, and there would be an example of the axe head flies off the axe handle and it kills somebody, then that would be in our in our terminology, even in our country, manslaughter, accidental death. And so then there would be a severe fine that would be put upon that person because it was ruled as an accident rather than being determined and willful. And so even in God's mind and even in God's character, we are seeing laws that distinguish between what would be accidental harm versus willful harm in that. Interesting to point out that God lays out here in this very paragraph, if an animal killed a human, the animal must always die. The reason I want to say that is I think it was like a year ago, Palm Beach Zoo, tiger killed one of the zookeepers. And so the animal had to be put down. And there was like this outcry, like, well, don't kill the animal. No, yes, that is, it's, it's life for life. That's exactly the idea. You have killed a human. And what God is always pointing out is that human life is supreme. Human life is always supreme. And so that's what's being pictured. And even God would say that in this very picture uh, as well. And recognizing that human life must stand above all things. And so the punishment must fit the crime. Life for life. There is room for accident. But all in all, we put together that human life is supreme. And that's what is always being brought out by God through every page that we're going to notice in this. Human life is supreme. Human life is supreme. It is unfortunate that our society has has moved away from that so much and no longer upholds the value of life. Because that's what God says. I mean, one of the reasons He commanded you weren't even supposed to be involved with blood was to ensure this, this communication in the mind of all people that blood equals life. Life is so valuable. Human life is of the utmost importance and must always be protected and must always be given the pinnacle. And so God lays that out here in chapter 21 as he pictures then the need for capital punishment. Might I underline that remember the the Ten Commandments said do not murder. And in the very next breath he's giving all the rules for capital punishment. I just want you to see those two are not incongruent. How often that happens. We're about to do capital punishment for mass murder. Well, wait, God said do not murder. Read the rest. (laughs) Uh, Yes, do not willfully go kill somebody, right? But life for life is exactly what God says must happen. That is exactly what he lays out and gives here in Exodus 21. He, He continues from the rest of chapter 21, verse 33 to chapter 22. Verse 15, and this is another really important principle that he lays out is we've moved away from capital punishment. Well, what about things that do not go to the level of life for life? And what you'll see throughout this paragraph from chapter 21, verse 33 to chapter 22, verse 15, is that if you did something to harm another person, not only were you to restore them, But you were to restore them with extra. So like a loss of property or something you own. It wasn't enough just to say, oh, okay, uh, here's your toy back. Sorry, I broke it. It was to be plus. It was always to be in addition. What was particularly interesting about this is that God did something that the other ancient Near Eastern law codes didn't do is that they had things like this of restoration, but it mattered what social class you were. 
Hammurabi's code has all kinds of rules for restoration and, and giving back if you've harmed somebody or wronged them. But only if you were in a higher class. Notice God's law did not care about that. It didn't matter who you were, how much you owned, or how little you had, or what class you had. If you suffered loss, you were to receive restoration. And that made it different. I think that's what's particularly interesting. If you remember, we have this man named Zacchaeus. And remember, as Jesus is going to go to Zacchaeus' house, everybody is just going nuts. Going, this guy's a tax collector. How can you eat at his house? And you remember what Zacchaeus said about that? If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That was the idea of the law. That's exactly what you're supposed to do, is you restored and then you went above and beyond. I think this is an important principle to keep in mind because we live in a society right now where they say, well, you lost something. Oh, well, (laughs) that's not the way it's supposed to be. If I suffer loss, there's supposed to be restitution of the loss. In fact, God thinks not only restitution of the loss, but a little bit more because you lost it. That's the whole idea of what God does. In fact, that truly should be the heart of how we would perceive dealing with one another. Is that it's not, well, I'm sorry that you have a loss, but what can I do to fix it? That is truly the heart of repentance. What can I do to right it? What can I do to overcome that? How can I restore this so that you are not in a loss or in a debt any longer? So really a neat picture then that he gives throughout this section and describing what you'll read is all these different scenarios of if you lose the animal and things like this is what you give it back and you give more than what, what was lost and trying to right this wrong that had been committed. And before we leave this section, I want you to notice another thing as well, particularly uh, a question that often comes up in regards to how we handle those who are attacking us. Notice chapter 22, verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun had risen, has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Interesting picture here is that self-defense is allowed in certain circumstances, which is very much our society as well, is that under certain conditions, there is room for self-defense. And what God lays out here is essentially the response needs to be equal to the threat. You'll notice in verse two, the picture is if it's at night and the person is coming in, then you are allowed to use whatever force necessary because you're unable to evaluate the threat. It's dark. You don't know what you have. But he pointed out the difference in verse 3, but if the, if the sun has risen on him, then there shall be blood guilt. And it seems to be the idea is you were able to evaluate the threat. And we've seen things like that in our society. I remember a few years ago, a guy had like broken into the house and he was now running down the street and was, you know, out of the house and running away and a guy a guy shot him and tried to claim self-defense. And even our law said, no, uh, you were not under threat anymore as they were running down the street. And that seems to be the idea here is under threat is where self-defense comes in, not I get to just shoot anybody I want because they stepped on my property. That's not the idea that's given here. So even an important distinction there, when life is threatened, okay. Life not threatened, not okay. That's the distinction that's even laid out here. 
Much of the rest of it, from chapter 22, verse 16, all the way to chapter 23, verse 9, some really neat pictures of social justice. Here are just, I don't know of a better word than just to say, miscellaneous rules about what life as the people of Israel would look like and what they were supposed to do uh, regarding certain circumstances. For example, 22 verse 16 and verse 17 describes if you had sexual relations with a single woman, you're required to marry her. And there's no concept before God of, well, we just kind of sleep around until we find the right one. If you had had sexual relations with a person, then now you're going to be married. That was the resolve that was that was given to that. And so God used that. Things like sorcery, idolatry, uh, and lying with an animal all receive the death penalty. Verses 18 through 20 of chapter 22. So again, things that we might be surprised that would be the death penalty, God lays out. Idolatry was supposed to have the death I found that interesting considering all the idolatry that goes on in the history of Israel. Uh, that was not to be accepted or tolerated by, at all by, by God whatsoever. You were God's a jealous God. You're not supposed to share with him. Uh, chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, you'll notice a description like in verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Uh, Casey just recently did a lesson out of James talking about pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans. That's an old Testament concept. That's not even a New Testament idea. That's always been the heart of God in caring for those who are with loss or downtrodden or or misfortune. And so here it is laid out here. Verse 25, you're not supposed to lend interest in one another to one or charge interest to one another in lending money. So Israelite to Israelite, don't charge interest. Just let them borrow the money and let them pay it back. Also interesting, verse 28, probably a good reminder for our society today. Also not a New Testament concept, but also an Old Testament concept. Do not revile God and do not curse a ruler of your people. You have in the New Testament the same idea about honoring the king. Same picture. Don't blaspheme God. Don't curse the ruler. Don't curse the king. Honor the emperor. Same thing is given here in verse 28 of chapter 22. Also notice chapter 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Notice that picture. Sometimes people say, you know, Loving your enemies is a New Testament concept. Not at all. Notice verse 4 says, if you find your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, what are you supposed to do? Go, oh, well, I hate that guy. (laughs) Glad his donkey wandered off. He deserves it. No, you're supposed to go get the donkey and give it back to him, even though he's your enemy. In verse 5, suppose the donkey has now fallen on him and here he is lying under the donkey. And you're supposed to go, ha, that's what you get. No. Pick up the donkey, help him up. Always been a picture of doing good to your enemies, that you would always do good by them. And so I want you to see that because it is particularly important, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus quotes the teachers that you would love your neighbors but hate your enemies as if they're quoting the law. It's not what the law said. The law is quite plain right here. 
You would love your enemies as well and not just love those who love you back. Jesus is very clear about that in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Even the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 says to do good to all especially the household of faith. And so what we see in the New Testament is also the heart of God. It's through the covenants that God had that appeal of how we would deal with one another. The rest of of this little paragraph from chapter 23, verse 10 to verse 19 is the giving of Sabbaths and and the giving of, of laws. One of the things that you'll notice in that paragraph is a description of how there was to be generosity to the poor. Then there's in the seventh year, the land was to lay fallow that you would be farming. And one of the reasons why was not only to allow it to give it rest, but we're told in that text in verse 11, whatever grows on that land was for the poor to eat that whole year. You weren't supposed to touch the land. You were just to let it be. And so here again is this generosity to the downtrodden. Again, a picture of the heart of God of helping those who were down and out and needed help. And so that's why the seventh year, the land would lay without any growing on it whatsoever so that the poor could eat from it. And then the rest of that paragraph, we get the, the teaching of there being three feasts that you were to present yourself before God. Here's the initiation of that. We sometimes talk about the New Testament of why do you see the, the Jews going to Jerusalem for these various events? And here's where they come from. And we see three different times he says they needed to come. One was for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We know that a little bit better is the Passover. The Passover was the first day of that Unleavened Bread feast. And so you were to come and present yourself before God. So in this, at this time frame, at the tabernacle, when they had the tabernacle, it become the temple later on when Solomon builds that. We have also the Feast of Harvest. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. In the New Testament, we know this better as Pentecost. That would be the other time you would have to come. That was 50 days after Passover. So often, like we see there in the book of Acts, that's why people stayed. Why would I travel all the way back home if I've got to come back in 50 days anyway? Remember, you don't have a car. It's going to take a while to get all the way back home to the expanses of the Roman Empire. We might as well just stay here and stay for the second feast. And then far later in the year was the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. All of these being memorials of how God had let them free from Egyptian slavery and had blessed them with great harvest and great th- gave them great blessings for them. And so this is being dictated here. All that for this final paragraph. This final paragraph is absolutely stunning. I'm excited for you to look at this. Listen to now this final warning that he's going to give, and this is going to end this particular section of of law giving. But notice what he says in verse 20 now. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. 
You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me for if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare to you. That's stunning. Let's talk about why that is. Notice what God is saying here as he gives a promise. Now the New Testament is like the Old Testament with this word angel. Angel, messenger, interchangeable, same same meaning. So Greek and Hebrew do the same thing. You would render the Hebrew word either talking about an angel or talking about a messenger. A couple of translations even read this as messenger. So listen to what God is telling Israel right here. Here's what's going to happen. Here are all my laws. Here is the book of the covenant. My messenger, my angel is going to bring you into the place that I have prepared. And so because he's going to lead you in, you need to obey his voice. Do not rebel against what he says or your sins will not be forgiven. And if you do not rebel against this messenger, God says, I will destroy your enemies. As I've told you, one of the big themes, my enemies, your enemies become my enemies, your adversaries, my adversaries. He makes that promise here. That God will destroy your enemies if you simply obey him. And then you'll notice some descriptions that are very interesting, very kingdom blessings. Did you notice that? Like verse 26, none shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Very Isaiah-like right there in describing this kingdom. When you come into the land, you will not be barren. You will live a full amount of days. You're going to enjoy all these blessings. You're going to inherit the land. So how did it go for Israel with regarding these promises? Not well, right? Even Isaiah 63 verse 9 makes the point and says they didn't do it. They rebelled against God's Holy Spirit and did not do these things. So you would have the tendency to think, well, those were all interesting predictions and prophecies and none of them happened. That's a shame for Israel. I want you to listen to what Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 begins with. Behold, I send my messenger. And often when we've come to Malachi, we've thought he's initiating a whole new prophecy here. But he's not. He's actually quoting, it's the same Hebrew words from chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send my angel or send my messenger. 
And what Malachi is doing in his prophecy is saying the promises that were made back here in Exodus regarding what God was going to do with his people and regarding all of the blessings and how he would destroy the enemies. Those promises were not dead, but God was going to give them another opportunity. In fact, as you read through Malachi 3, Malachi will talk about he's coming with a refiner's fire and fuller soap and he's going to purge out the wickedness and he's going to have a people. And so you You need to get ready. And so Malachi is not having new prophecy, but is echoing what Exodus was saying. Israel failed back here in receiving the promises. And Malachi comes along at the very end and says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Now, the reason why that's particularly interesting is please notice how the gospel of Mark opens. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What Mark does is he actually takes three quotations and puts them together in one. Isaiah is the one who is noted because he is the major prophet. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, we know from Isaiah 40. We also have a quotation from, from Malachi 3. But Malachi 3 only says, I will send my messenger. In fact, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face actually comes from Exodus 23, 20, which you see right there. I will send my angel before you to before your face to go before you. What the gospel of Mark is doing as it opens up this new scene and argues now here is the gospel of Jesus Christ as what was written by the prophets Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus 23. All of those promises that had been extended to Israel. But Isaiah says they failed. Malachi comes along and says, those promises are not dead. The gospel of Mark opens. When this person arrives, these promises are coming. And now think about how you can read this in the same lens of what John the baptizer and Jesus then are going around saying. When John comes, all of the promises that these prophecies from Exodus 23 and Malachi 3 were all going to come to fruition. Consider, John is preparing the way to bring people before God. In verse 20 of Exodus 23, Behold, I send my messenger before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So what does he say to do then? Verse 21, Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. This is the message of John the baptizer. Think about what John the baptizer is doing when he stands out there. Remember how there were these multitudes like these Pharisees and these religious leaders who'd come. And remember what he tells them? Brood of vipers, who warns you of the wrath to come? He starts sending them away. You have no idea. You're not a part of this promise. It's not going to be for you. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. God's about to strike. But to those other multitudes who were coming to him, remember, he's baptizing them in the Jordan as they're preparing for the arrival of Christ, which is exactly what Exodus continues to say. You need to listen to John. You need to listen to the messenger, obey his voice. And if you do, God's going to be on your side and he will fight your enemies and the blessings of the kingdom will arrive. In fact, what's John the baptizer's main message? Repent. 
Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is exactly what Exodus was predicting, is that when the messenger comes, he is going to usher in these very things. But Israel failed, but the promises were not dead. In fact, those promises still were awaiting for when Christ would arrive and allow those promises to be fulfilled. Told you, it's unbelievable, right? It's like, oh. <laughs> unbelievable what's sitting right here. So exciting to see that here is God all the way back in introducing himself to the people through Moses at Mount Sinai. And it's talking about leading his people into a promised land and there'd be a messenger to prepare the way and that God would fight for his people and give them blessings and let them enjoy the fruit of the inheritance that is laid out. And we come into the New Testament and recognize the things of the Old Testament were merely shadows of a greater reality to come, that John the baptizer arrives as the messenger and the forerunner, proclaiming the message of Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom and saying, everything that we've hoped for has now arrived. What Malachi was looking for, what Moses was preparing, what everybody was, was prophesying was awaiting the arrival of Christ. And if we will obey his voice, we enjoy the blessings of the kingdom and God will fight for us and we enjoy the inheritance rest. I look forward to Wednesday night with you guys. A lot of great stuff that's in this text. It's been so easy to skip and see. Here is God describing his very heart, describing his very character of here are my laws, here are my rules, here is my covenant. If you'll do the things that I say, I'll bring you into the promised land. Very exciting. We're going to sing a song now, and our invitation to you is to see the hope that is in God. To see the hope that if we would submit our lives to Jesus, if we would turn away from sins, obey him with all of our heart, to to see him as the wonderful God that he is and that the rules that he gives and the laws that he gives are not to keep us from enjoying this life, but are given to us to help us in this life and keep us from danger and keep us from sin so that we could be in fellowship with him and enjoy a relationship with him eternally. This was the hope that he had for the people of God. And it's a hope that we can enjoy if we will give our lives to him. If you're ready to do that, won't you come tonight?